Hi, you guys. Michael Debar here. You know, I was in this band, The Power Station, and... The power! And I, I wanted to tell you about this new podcast. Now, we all know that there's a tremendous amount of podcasts, but this guy, Joe Kay, he really knows what he's talking about. Get it on, get it on, get it on. Welcome to listeners, the new listeners, to Joe Kay's new podcast. This is not a test. This is Play That Rock and Roll Podcast Edition. I'm your host, Joe Kay, and welcome to another episode of Play That Rock and Roll. Today we are going to talk about some great classic rock, in particular, one of the greatest rock god guitar heroes of the 1970s. The bomber, the midnight man, the confessor, the one and only Joe Walsh. Joe Walsh is one of my absolute favorite guys in rock and roll always has been uh not just for all the great songs he's produced over the years but if you see him in interviews or on tv he just seems like one of the most likable guys uh as far as celebrities go and he's got a profoundly interesting story he's one of those guys that like if you're a fan of him you're sort of in the know uh (laughs) He didn't have the most pop success as a solo artist, but I've worn this tour shirt of his out a couple of times, and on more than one occasion, someone on the street has either given me a thumbs up or a point or a nice shirt, that kind of thing. And that's because he's a gem when it comes to the classic rock era. You know, you talk to some casual fans, oh, you like Led Zeppelin? Good for you. You say the Beatles are your favorite band? Oh, how original. You said you like Joe Walsh? Oh, now wait a minute. Wait a minute, you like Joe Walsh? Well, okay, now, see, now we're getting somewhere. Now we can have a conversation. Um, I know that sounds silly, so for those of you who don't know, I'm hoping that over this next hour or so, I can uh, attempt to explain why this is. Why Joe is so well-revered in the classic rock community. He's got a great story, and we're going to talk about his life's work starting today, which will focus on the earlier part of his career, and then we'll also have a part two that will catch the back half of his career as well. So let's get started. Joe was born on November 20th, 1947, in Wichita, Kansas. That would make him 72 as of this recording. Uh, His biological father tragically died uh, in a plane crash when he was five years old. So uh, he was adopted and raised by his stepfather. Joe's original last name is Fiddler. When he was adopted, Walsh was his stepfather's last name, and Fiddler became his middle name. So his full name is Joe Fiddler Walsh. He decided he wanted to learn how to play guitar at the young age of 10 years old after hearing a song called Walk, Don't Run by The Ventures, which is probably not a song that comes to mind uh, just by saying it, but I'll play a clip and I bet you'll recognize it. So here's Walk, Don't Run by The Ventures. 
Again, that was Walk, Don't Run by The Ventures. That's the song that inspired Joe to want to learn how to play guitar. And sure enough, he went about doing just that. In 1965, he joined a garage band called The Measles. The Measles were sort of this amateur garage rock band. They would play stuff like high school dances, kind of like what we talked about with Steve Miller's uh, childhood band. They were based out of Ohio, which was where they were all living at the time, and they lasted for about two years, 65 to 67. Um, Just sort of a footnote to this band, Walsh was asked about reuniting them uh, in 2012 by the San Diego Union Tribune, and he said, I don't know if any of those people besides me are alive. I'm sure they're in Ohio, if they're still around. Sort of joking around about it. I guess he doesn't keep in touch with those guys. But uh, this was more or less sort of a amateur, a, a practice band. Uh, a band that taught him how to just be in a band uh, so he'd be more ready for his next attempt. And his next attempt uh, was a serious one. His next attempt is a band that is well-beloved in the world of classic rock, and I'm talking about The James Gang. The James Gang is an American power trio built very similar to how Cream was in England at the time. James Gang was produced by Bill Simzik, who is the super producer who would go on to produce a number of Joe Walsh solo albums, as well as The Eagles, and we'll get to them soon enough. So Joe Walsh joined the James Gang, which was already established. He joined them in early 1968, and the two other guys in the band at the time were Tom Chris on bass and Jim Fox on drums. There there was a fourth and, and maybe even a fifth member as well, but before they really got started, those guys left. In fact, their classic lineup is the American Power Trio, Uh, debuted in May 1968 at a gig opening for Cream, a band they are often compared to. The fourth member at the time, a guy named Ronnie Silverman, who also played guitar, like Joe, ducked out, ditched them, just didn't show up for the gig, and they decided to just go on without him. They played a number of shows with Cream, which got a lot of people in in the rock world at the time to make the comparison. A year later, they released their debut album, called Your Album, Y-E-R Album, in March 1969. Your Album is a strong debut. It has a couple of what I would call as radio-friendly tracks, but also there's some jam sessions. It's, It's a good point to launch, and it had a very minor hit and a fan favorite of a song called Funk Number 48. So I'm going to play a clip of Funk number 48 just to sort of give you uh, a quick listen to what early James Gang sounded like. Here's Funk 48 from your album. I like this track. Uh, I think it's a good listen. Um, What's interesting about this band is that Joe wasn't necessarily a full-time musician. He was actually still attending college uh, while they were producing this record and the next one. And he was uh, attending college at Kent State University in the late 60s uh, and into 1970. 
And for those of you who know your Vietnam War history, Kent State University in 1970 uh, was the site of an incredible flashpoint of the whole history of the Vietnam War in which National Guardsmen opened fire on university students who were protesting the war. This happened on May 4th, 1970. Four students were killed. There is that iconic, famous picture of the woman screaming over, you know, one of the dead bodies that's in every American history textbook. Uh, it inspired the song Ohio by Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. moment in American history, and Joe was on campus uh, that day. He was around when that happened. He was asked about it in 2012, and he, he said, now, quote, being at the shootings really affected me profoundly. I decided that maybe I didn't need a degree that bad. Perfectly understandable take. A, a tragic incident happens on campus. It's easy to see why he found... Um, playing in a band far less stressful is sort of living through that awful history. So just uh, two months after this tragedy at Kent State, the James Gang released their second album. And at this point, Dale Peters replaced Tom Chris on bass. And the album would be called James Gang Rides Again. This is a fantastic album. Uh, we talked just a few minutes ago about Funk Number no. 48. This album one-ups it with Funk Number no. 49, which is an even better track. And to me, this album shows that the band had arrived. They were fulfilling the potential promised by their first record, and they were firing on all cylinders. And this is a great record. I really enjoy it. And I'm not the only one. Pete Townsend from The Who, uh, after hearing this record, called Joe Walsh the best American guitar player. And it was during this time that the James Gang would start to open for bands like The Who. And because of that, Joe Walsh became friends with uh, The Who's drummer Keith Moon. And we'll talk about their antics a little bit more. So Funk 49 is a really well-known James Gang song. And I, I recommend looking that up on YouTube if you haven't heard it before. Uh, instead of playing that, I'm going to play a clip from a song called The Bomber, which is just another A-plus track from the James Gang here, we'll take a listen. This is the bomber from James Gang Rides Again. So they released James Gang Rides Again. It's a success. They have a little bit of chart success with uh, Funk 49. And less than a year later, they released their third album, appropriately titled Thirds, in April 1971. This album has the quintessential James Gang song, Walk Away. And uh, it, it wasn't a huge hit, but it is, I think, maybe not their best song, but their most accessible song and a, just another very strong effort from the band. So I'm going to play a clip of Walk Away, and you should recognize this one. Seems to me You don't want to talk about it Seems to me You just turn your pretty head and walk away 
So shortly after releasing Thirds, the James Gang followed that up with their first and only live album, James Gang Live in Concert, which was released uh, September 1971. It was recorded in May of that year, and I've looked up the set list from the, the concert they recorded it from, and sadly, this is a very abbreviated set. This is not the full show. Only uh, looks like uh, about half the show. So I've always felt that whoever owns the rights to James Gang Live in Concert should do a full re-release of the the full show that night because it cuts out a couple of important songs, including Funk 49, Midnight Man, and The Bomber. So that's yeah, disappointing. Now that said, it, the songs we do have here are very good. It's, it's a strong live album, and it's a good presentation of what the James Gang uh, concert experience would be like. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. So the second two records, and then this live album, uh, shows the band sort of at their height of their power. They're firing on all cylinders and they're doing their best. Unfortunately, the band's best was not at the same level of Joe's best, if that makes any sense. Joe was getting frustrated in the band because they couldn't quite keep up with what he wanted to do. And he started to feel the limitations of what he could do, not just within the band, but with the whole power trio format. 
He was doing most of the writing, singing, and guitar work, and he was the face of the band. So there was a lot of pressure, and even though these are real good records, they weren't enjoying a lot of uh, chart success. So it was a lot of work and a lot of pressure, but relatively little reward. At the end of the day, Joe just had too much unfulfilled potential to stay put. It was far too early in his career for him to get comfortable, and he certainly felt that way. He needed to expand. He didn't need to grow as an artist. Now, this is going to sound disrespectful. I don't mean to be, but as far as the other guys in the band go, they didn't have this problem. They were reaching their full potential on these records, and that's not to say that they're not talented. They're incredibly talented. They just weren't on the same level as Joe was. I'll put it this way. The band was firing on all cylinders, but as a band, they didn't have that many cylinders to fire. Joe left the band in December 1971. Uh, Shortly after, he was recruited to join a a similar band uh, called Humble Pie, uh, which is Peter Frampton's old band. uh, Frampton had just quit, so they invited Joe to join. He declined, and that was a good move because joining Humble Pie at that point would have been at best, a lateral move, if not a step down. So <clears throat> so Joe was committed to pursuing a solo career. Now, the interesting thing about James Gang, and what a lot of people don't realize, is they did not break up when Joe left. They continued on for several years um, to almost no success. I should really do a full episode on the James Gang story, not this sort of abbreviated thing we're doing today, because they put out more albums without Joe Walsh than they did with him. When he left in December 1971, they kept going. To replace Joe, they brought in a vocalist and a guitarist and sort of ditched the whole power trio format and released an album called Straight Shooter in May 1972. I listened to a little bit that album sucks uh and most of everything they did without joe walsh sucks and i'm sorry to be that dismissive but here i'll i'll play a clip from that uh straight shooter record called looking for my lady at best you can say it it might not be bad but it is certainly not special. It's not particularly interesting, and if somebody told me that James Gang without Joe Walsh was their favorite band, that would raise some eyebrows, to say the least. They would eventually release six records without Joe between 1972 and 1976. Through the whole time, besides uh, Peters and Fox, the lineup was unstable, they couldn't get guys to stay, and uh, there, there was all sorts of typical rock star problems in the 70s, you know, drug use, pressure from the label. And I have to imagine fan disinterest and, you know, commercial failure. So I'm going to play a clip of their highest charting single, which hit number 54 on the Billboard Hot 100. This is called Must Be Love from 1973's Bang. My head is spinning, but- So genuine question, can you honestly expect better music from an album literally called James Gangbang? I don't think so. 
it didn't take much longer. They officially disbanded in late 1977. And Joe eventually would return to him for a handful of times in the 90s and early 2000s. And I think I'm being pretty dismissive of their all overall story. So at some point I'll revisit them. But to be perfectly clear, James Gang without Joe Walsh is not particularly good music. Or at least it's not particularly interesting music. Joe was key to that band. And he it wouldn't just be them, though. He would be key to another band, who we'll get to shortly. But before we do that, we're going to take our first break, and we're going to talk about some news. So let's take a look at some recent headlines in a segment I call Yesterday's News. And that is the iconic psychedelic rock hit from Kenny Rogers, Just Dropped In to See What My Condition, My Condition Was In. Many of you might recognize that from the film The Big Lebowski. I'm playing that today because the day I record this episode is the day that Kenny Rogers sadly passed away. Um, Although he's not really a classic rock guy, I feel it's important to acknowledge legends when they pass and to celebrate their music just like we would when our rock and roll stars pass away. Kenny Rogers, he started his career in a very different place than he found most of his commercial success in. So I would really recommend you check out um, that song, Just Dropped In, to see what my condition my condition was in, and the the, the era of music that he produced that it came from. And of course, The Gambler's a classic, you know, and if you watch the old We Are The World video, you'll catch him in there, and, you know, the duets with, with Dolly Parton might be, like, a little cheesy, but it's Americana. He's classic Americana. You know, when I was in high school and college, I, I never would have acknowledged liking Kenny Rogers or Dolly Parton because eh, it's it, dorky old people country music. But since I've become much more of a music fan and I've explored, even lightly, both of their catalogs, I just have a tremendous amount of respect for the work and the talent and... I gotta say, I'm I'm saddened by today's news. I don't know a lot about Kenny's music, but the little bit that I do know, I definitely have a soft spot for. So, raise a glass for Kenny Rogers, and if you can't get into his music, if he just turns you off, then let me direct you to a different place to have some fun. Go on YouTube and look up old Mad TV clips of Will Sasso playing Kenny Rogers. They are absolutely hilarious in that off-the-wall Mad TV style. Those are the clips that I remember from high school. Will Sasso's impression was always funny. So if you if you don't want to listen to any of his music today, watch one of those clips. You know, let's just celebrate the guy one way or another. 
so the last thing I'll say about Kenny Rogers is uh, he I, I missed it and I should have went I guess but he did a, a farewell tour from 2015 to 2017 he had some 2018 dates but those had to be canceled for health reasons uh, he, he came through Wisconsin a couple of times and I I, I should have made the effort to see him his final concert was in Nashville on October 25th, 2017 at the Bridgestone Arena, where he was joined by a number of guest stars, including a very special appearance by Dolly Parton, who joined him on duets You Can't Make Old Friends and, of course, Islands in the Stream. So as far as his music career had gone, he had some really nice closure. He had completed the farewell tour. He had said goodbye to his fans and the way that I think most artists would like to. And some of his final moments on stage were shared by the iconic Dolly Parton, which is very poetic, a very great ending to an incredible career. All right, what's our next story? Well, the next story is just this insane corona pandemic we're all dealing with. Uh, COVID-19 has had an incredible uh, effect on every aspect of American life. And the classic rock scene is no exception. Everyone's had to cancel shows. Obviously, we don't know what's coming, but the the coronavirus has had a, an absolutely terrible effect in, in the music world. So, what can we do given the new reality we have for right now? So, here's my suggestion. Many of us work from home now, and I think all this time where we're kind of cooped up in the house, this is a great opportunity to get caught up on albums, uh, rock documentaries, concert films, all these things that we may own or have heard of that we've been meaning to see or listen to. Now is the time. You're stuck at home. Rock biographies. If you have those around, crack open the book and get all caught up with the stuff you have. Uh, one thing I'm doing and posting about this on my Twitter page, uh, which is at Play That Podcast, uh, you can follow us there and on Facebook, uh, is I'm listening to, at random, a classic rock record a day. And this is how I did it. I put together an Excel file with a list of all my favorite classic rock bands and assigned a number to each one. I then went to a random number generator online, pick a number, and then I go to that artist's discography. Again, I assign each of their studio records a number and pick one of those at at random. And that is the album I will listen to all the way through that day. I've only been doing it a little bit now. Uh, The first one I had was Fleetwood Mac's Mystery to Me, fun record. And then after that, I picked uh, Invisible Touch by Genesis, which is a record I, I have heard. Uh, most of the songs from but I haven't listened to it all the way through so it's just a great exercise to get back in touch with the music we love and and to do it in a sort of an interesting way you can kind of keep a log of it on Facebook or whatever okay so let's move on to what I think might be one of the biggest classic rock stories of the year which already because of this corona thing is kind of fallen under the radar and that story is that Journey has fired longtime members Ross Valori and Steve Smith. I don't even know where to start with this story because this seems more out of a, a, a Wall Street shareholders meeting than it does out of a band. So here's the deal. Ross Valori and Steve Smith attempted a hostile takeover of Journey's production company, Nightmare Productions, an appropriately named company if I ever heard one. 
So to even talk about this story, you have to have an understanding of the bizarre ways bands are run now. Ross Valori and Steve Smith have been in Journey for a really long time, but they're not co-owners of the band, or I should say the brand. The brand Journey is owned by Neil Sean, Jonathan Kane, and their ex-lead singer, Steve Perry. So technically, Ross Valori and Steve Smith are salaried employees. And I guess they were looking to set themselves up for a big payday in their post-touring years, because they're very aware that touring as Journey isn't going to last forever. So the story goes that in February of this year, Smith and Valori held shareholder and board meetings at Nightmare Productions. And during these meetings, these two guys and their allies, including ex-singer Steve Perry, voted to give Smith and Valori control over the board, replacing Jonathan Kane as president with uh, Steve Smith and replacing Neil Sean as secretary with uh, Ross Valori. The idea was that if Ross and Steve were the chairman and secretary of Nightmare Productions, they could leverage their position to force the Journey brand to pay them X amount of money after the band stopped touring. This is an incredibly bold move. This is like a hostile takeover. And legally speaking, it probably wouldn't have worked because Nightmare Productions does not actually own Journey. The Journey name and trademark are owned, like I said, by Steve Perry, Neil Sean, and Jonathan Kane. So even if this had worked, I don't think they would have had the leverage that they thought they would have had. And, then, and of course, the whole thing backfired massively. They're both out of work now. And because this whole thing was just an attempt at leverage that failed, to me, it's hard to feel bad for them. And I just really hope that either one of these guys will give an in-depth interview about exactly what they were thinking. Because on its face, the whole thing strikes me as really ballsy, but really stupid. And I'm surprised that so many other people on the board voted to give them the power they were looking for. Especially Steve Perry. This speaks to some really interesting power dynamics within the band, or should I say brand, journey. All right, we've gone on long enough about this. Let's get back to our second segment. I'm way down, I'm so down, I'm reading yesterday's news. So Joe returned to launch a solo career in 1972, and he would launch uh, it with a band and an album called Barnstorm. Barnstorm was, like the James Gang, a power trio, this time with Kenny Passarelli on bass and Joe Vitale on drums. But unlike the James Gang, a lot of session musicians contributed to this record as well. For this record, Joe relocated out in Colorado. And if you're ever at the Red Rocks Amphitheater in Colorado, I would really recommend checking out their exhibit at the Colorado Music Hall of Fame. A great little video and exhibit of this Barnstorm project that Joe did during his time in Colorado. So Barnstorm is more folk rock than the James Gang style hard rock. And that was because Joe was growing, musically speaking. But he had some rockers on there as well. I'm going to play you a clip from a song called Turn to Stone, which is always a Joe Walsh concert staple and a very hard rock jam. So take a listen. Here's Turn to Stone. Hey, no, it's getting stronger. I don't think they can 
like that track quite a bit. And that's because it sort of reminds me of, like, the bomber from the James Gang. Uh, I, I appreciate that Joe was trying to grow as a musician, but as far as I'm concerned, I, I like the harder rock stuff. Um, so I really like Turn to Stone. Uh, a year later, in June 1973, he released uh, his next album, which was called The Smoker You Drink, The Player You Get. And although this is all of the same people from Barnstorm, now the record is billed as just Joe Walsh. And again, much like Barnstorm, there's a variety of music here. There's some blues, some jazz, more folk music. But like with Turn to Stone on the last record, there is an absolute rock staple on this one. And I would say it's probably Joe Walsh's best song. And I'm sure you know it before I even play it. But here it is, Rocky Mountain Way by Joe Walsh. Yes, Rocky Mountain Way. That is classic rock in a nutshell. That is a a song Joe has said he's probably the most proud of, of everything he's ever released, and for good reason. This is an absolute staple on any classic rock radio station, and if you don't have this song somewhere in your collection, I really recommend, if nothing else from today, go out and get this track, Rocky Mountain Way. So let's move on to December 1974. Joe Walsh releases this record, So What?, And So What is my favorite Joe Walsh solo album from this early era. Barnstorm basically was over. Uh, Joe Vitale stayed on, but the rest of the guys um, from that project had moved on to other things. And Joe was starting to work with new musicians, uh, some who will become very important in his career later on. So this album has a number of really interesting tracks, one of which is called Song for Emma. This is a very heartbreaking track because it was written as a memorial to Joe Walsh's three-year-old daughter who had been killed in a car accident the previous year. Basically, some drunk driver hit the car that Joe's girlfriend was driving and it had killed his daughter Emma, who had been in the car with her. It's a very sad story, and when you see the title So What? and you see even this sort of blank expression of his on the cover you sort of get an idea of like what his headspace was like during this uh, time period it was very apathetic very depressed but song from is a very nice tribute very touching song and and although song from is very sad very tragic the rest of the album is is not a downer this is not a depressing piece as a whole one of his absolute best songs, a track called Welcome to the Club, is on this record, and also a newer version of the song we talked about earlier, Turn to Stone. Turn to Stone, he re-recorded with a couple of guys who will become very important to his career, Glenn Fry, Don Henley, and Randy Meisner, all of whom were in The Eagles. And Don Henley wrote some lyrics for Joe on a song called Falling Down. And all this was because The Eagles were actively recruiting him to join their band and this is why so what is probably my favorite of joe walsh's early solo records 
it's not just good music, but there's uh, some very interesting stories behind it. And it's a transitional piece between his sort of up and down solo career to the commercial juggernaut that the Eagles would become. So let's talk about why the Eagles were trying to recruit him. Basically, the Eagles were very unhappy with one of their guitarists, a guy named Bernie Ledden. Bernie Ledden famously quit the Eagles after an argument with Glenn Fry, which ended with Bernie pouring a beer directly over Glenn's head. Uh, an incredibly tense situation you can learn about if you ever watch the, the rock documentary History of the Eagles. That's a great watch and a great part of that movie is when they talk about this story. Bernie was also more of a country folk player, and the Eagles were looking for a harder rock sound. That's the way the 70s were going. They wanted more commercial success with a more robust, loud rock and roll vibe. And since Bernie had left, they felt Joe could be that guy. And again, at this point, Joe was not just a, a proven hit maker and a very talented guitar player. Uh, he was also establishing himself as a reliable session player. These are some deep cuts here, but you can look up some tracks by other artists that Joe Walsh joined in the studio and played guitar for. For example, if you like uh, rock and roll Hoochie Coo by Rick Derringer, there's a couple of tracks on his All-American Boy that uh, Joe plays guitar on. Unfortunately, neither is rock and roll Hoochie Coo. If you have the REO Speedwagon album, Right in the Storm Out, which is pre-Kevin Cronin, by the way, Joe plays slide guitar on three tracks, although not the title track. And that's sort of interesting because in the early 70s, guys like Rick Derringer and Gary Richrath, those were sort of the a comparable class of guitar players uh, as Joe Walsh. Uh, he produced the record Souvenirs for Dan Fogelberg in 1974, and he played on a number of tracks of Keith Moon's only solo record, Two Sides of the Moon. Now, that's a joke record, and Joe and Keith were drinking buddies, but it's a little piece of uh, rock history right there, sort of interesting. As he got closer and closer to joining the Eagles, he released a live album in 1976 called You Can't Argue With a Sick Mind. Great title. But sort of like how I talked about with James Gang Live in Concert, it is far too short. It's only like six songs. All hits, but really really too short so sort of a missed opportunity to put something uh, a little more robust a little more interesting so joe walsh joined the eagles just in time to be a part of their landmark album hotel california which is not only the commercial high point of the band but it's it was the artistic apex as well this is an incredibly important music of of not just the 70s or classic rock but of american music as a whole and he contributed some very iconic moments to this record. There was the uh, opening guitar rift on Life in the Fast Lane, which, funny enough, he was something he just did in the studio as sort of a warm-up practice. And here I'll play a clip of an interview where he talks about that here. I had this lick that I played that I would warm up for a show with. Okay. And it's, it's a coordination exercise between your right and left hand. And it's this. Yeah. 
Yes. And I used to do that. I was just Slow playing. It down. I was just playing. Yeah. Warming up for the show, and Glenn comes busting in my dressing room and says, "What the hell's that?" I love it. Yes. And I said, "I don't know. It's just this lick I warm up with." He said, "That's an eagle song, dude." Contributed the song Pretty Maids All in a Row, which is not a rock song, but it's uh, a nice melody, which he uh, wrote with Joe Vitale, uh, who was a guy he collaborated with many times over the years. And of course, perhaps the most iconic point of the whole album, which in essence is one of the most iconic moments in all of music, is the guitar duel between Joe Walsh and Don Felder on the back half of the song Hotel California. Yeah, so this solo, this song, this whole album is the Eagles at the height of their power. And to this day, it's one of the greatest selling records of all time. And without Joe's presence, this record would not have been exactly that. So to their credit, Glenn Fry and Don Henley went out and got exactly the right guy they needed to achieve exactly what they were hoping to. And that's becoming one of the most successful bands of all time. Unfortunately, a lot of problems come with reaching those artistic and commercial heights. There's an incredible amount of drug use, infighting, and studio pressure that came along with this success and a band can't function for very long in those settings so we're going to talk a little bit more about that but first let's take another break and let's look at some big headlines of yesteryear with a segment i like to call back in time huey lewis take it away is this a So 40 years ago, in March 1980, Pink Floyd's Another Brick in the Wall was topping the charts, and we just heard a little bit of that. But let's go back even further. Let's go back to 60 years ago. Let's go back to March 5th, 1960. Elvis Presley officially discharged from the U.S. Army. This is just a great little trivia of music history. Elvis Presley was drafted by the U.S. Army and had to serve in the military in the late 50s. He was drafted in 1958 and he served in Germany. So this means he did not see any active combat. And when I first learned about this, my first thought was, oh my God, did Elvis kill a guy? Uh, (laughs) I can't say about any other time in his life, but as far as his time in the service, no, Elvis did not kill anybody. He did not see any active combat and he was never in any real danger. Sadly, though, during his time overseas, his mother passed away, and his wife developed a drug habit in his absence. So, sort of a sad little element to uh, this weird part of Elvis's history. 
Okay, we'll move forward 10 years. We go to March 19 in 1970. David Bowie marries model Angela Barnett. Angela was the inspiration for many Bowie songs, some of his best work, including Be My Wife, Golden Years, other songs. She always claimed she was also the inspiration for the Rolling Stones song Angie, although both Mick Jagger and Keith Richards have denied that. The marriage, to me, isn't terribly interesting, but it it is definitely a, a big moment in Bowie's career. If you ever read one of the more salacious Mick Jagger biographies, you'll probably read the story about her catching Mick and Bowie in bed together. Whether you believe all that stuff or not is is up to you. I, I think it's fun to read, but uh, needless to say, Angela was around during Bowie's really hard drugs, hard partying years, and it had an effect on him. Uh, I started reading uh, the definitive Bowie biography, and she is she had a huge impact on him. It's very interesting to, to read about their relationship. Okay, move forward another 10 years to 40 years ago, March 19, 1980. Back to Elvis. Elvis Presley's autopsy was subpoenaed during the trial of Dr. George Nicopolis, who would later be found guilty of overprescribing drugs to Elvis, Jerry Lee Lewis, and other clients. And Elvis died of an overdose. So I only bring that up because we sort of saw that same thing after Michael Jackson and also Prince when those guys died. The estates of those two guys uh, would go on to sue the two doctors that prescribed all these drugs. So this was an issue that is nothing new. Goes back at least 40 years, probably further back. So let's wrap up this segment by fast-forwarding. I like to do it on the decades, but let's fast-forward to 34 years ago to March 27, 1986. Sammy Hagar plays his first full concert with Van Halen at the Hirsch Memorial Coliseum in Shreveport, Louisiana. The official launch of the Van Hagar era. So to play us out, here's a little of Why Can't This Be Love. Take it away, Sammy. Okay, final segment. Before we wrap up, we do have some fun stuff still ahead. Let's talk really quick about Yacht Rock. Yacht Rock is a genre of easy listening, light FM rock and roll that was popular sort of in the late 70s and early 80s. Guys like Jimmy Buffett, Kenny Loggins, Christopher Cross, Michael McDonald, who wrote a lot of very relaxing, often island-themed music. The sort of music that you would play if you were sunbathing on a beach or partying on a yacht long before T-Pain's I'm on a boat. This sort of music would be the soundtrack to going out on the water. Among those artists is a sort of lesser-known guy named Jay Ferguson. And Jay Ferguson wrote what I believe to be is the best yacht rock song of all time. So, sorry, Jimmy, Kenny, Chris. <laughs> this is it. This is the apex of uh, the genre to me. So here, here's a quick clip and see if you recognize this. A summer's day, laughing and hiding, chasing love. Okay, yeah, I'm loving this. So I bring this up because 
this song, Thunder Island, and the album it came from, was recorded at the same studio as Hotel California, and Jay Ferguson was produced by Bill Simzik, who also produced Joe Walsh's solo records and the Eagles. So when putting this record together, Bill got Jay and Joe Walsh together, and Joe Walsh recorded the guitar solo on Thunder Island. So let's cut back to the song and listen to a to a uh, to see if we can hear Joe in there. Take it away. Oh, this is great. I, I love this song, and I love hearing Joe Walsh's guitar solo on it. Lots of fun. It's the, He's playing the slide guitar. He plays it on uh, not just this song, but uh, some other tracks on the album. And surprisingly, despite this being Jay's only real hit, I couldn't find a, a lot of interviews or or remarks that he's made about Joe Walsh in the years past. The only thing I found was this uh, uh, old newspaper interview where the guy conducting the interview suggested that Jay was going to be sort of typecast as this yacht rock type of guy by working with Joe Walsh. And Jay responded by saying, Joe Walsh is a very free person. He is Joe Walsh of the Eagles, but he is also Joe Walsh, a star in his own right pretty worthless comment but the only comment at least i could find that jay has ever said about joe walsh since releasing that album anyway not a big deal in joe's career but certainly uh, a big moment in jay ferguson's career and to me just a a treat that he shows up on my favorite yacht rock song so that that album was released in 1977 the eagles were taking a very long time in their follow-up to hotel california so Joe Walsh had some time to work on a solo record, and he released his last solo record of the 1970s, which was called But Seriously, Folks. And it featured not his best song, but I would have to say probably his most well-known song, Life's Been Good. Life's Been Good hit number 12 on the Billboard Hot 100, which means it's his highest charting single uh, ever. And it's a very silly song, which is a send-up of the rock star lifestyle. But it's also fairly autobiographical. The things Joe Walsh is referencing, if you look up a video where he talks about it, you'll see like these are references to things that actually happened in his life. And it's a fun song, but it's it's at its core very silly and i just remember (laughs) a great uh, article title from the onion uh, which read something like uh man driving on his way to bridge to commit suicide here's life's been good on the radio (laughs) i always loved that and you know it's it's a classic rock staple right along rocky mountain way but it's a very different vibe than Rocky Mountain Way. This is Joe in his clown prince of rock persona. He's being very funny. He's riffing on what it means to be a rock star. And 
he was getting a huge look at what being a rock star really was because he wasn't just partying with the Eagles, who were the biggest band in the world at the time, but he was famously good friends with guys like Keith Moon and John Belushi, who were famous not just for the music or comedy they produced, but for the drugs they did and the partying they were a part of. And unfortunately, guys like Keith Moon and John Belushi and John Bonham from Led Zeppelin, these were names of people who did not make it because of drugs. Joe was right there partying with the best of them, and he survived. (laughs) And that, to me, is always one of the most interesting things about him. So when you hear life's been good, it definitely comes from a guy who really lived that rock and roll lifestyle. So a year later... He was featured on a soundtrack uh, for a movie called The Warriors. Warriors is a great movie. Absolutely recommend seeing that. His song is called In the City, and it's featured over the end credits. And that song really captures the mood of the whole movie. And this is a, a movie that is full of great music. So hearing Joe Walsh at the end is just the cherry on top of a fantastic cinematic and also musical experience. Now for that group out there that had such a hard time getting home, sorry about that. I guess the only thing we can do is play you a song. enjoy that movie and album. And I wasn't the only one. The Eagles, uh, namely Glenn Fry and Don Henley, also really liked uh, Joe's song, In the City. And they got him to re-record it with them for their 1979 The Long Run album. And this is Joe's only song on the album. He co-wrote The Sad Cafe, but he didn't sing on it. And anytime you see the Eagles play, Joe will absolutely sing this song. And it is, as it was then, an absolute jam. And again, his presence on a hard rock jam like in the city uh, is exactly what Glenn Fry and Don Henley wanted as part of their band. So it justifies those two guys going out and getting Joe Walsh for the Eagles. But like I suggested in the last segment... Bands that operate with that much studio pressure, uh, commercial expectations, band infighting, drug use, uh, and excessive touring, like that pace can only be kept for so long. And all these problems and all these personality conflicts and ego trips that these guys were going through was finally getting to be too much for the band to sustain itself. And at a fundraiser, for a politician that Glenn and Don had some appreciation for, things got out of hand and the Eagles would meet their end. So you can read about the story in Don Felder's Heaven and Hell, and you can also see it in the documentary A History of the Eagles, because this is a very famous story. The very famous breakup of the Eagles came to a head at something they call Wrong Night at Long Beach. What had happened was Glenn Fry 
and Don Henley wanted to do a fundraiser for a senator named Alan Cranston, who advocated for a lot of political policies that they supported. Don Felder was not as politically active as Henley or Fry, and understandably so, at least I think. He was not particularly interested in participating in a fundraising concert for a guy he wasn't familiar with and a cause he didn't really care about. So before the show, during a meet and greet with the senator and his wife, Senator Cranston's wife came up to each of the guys in the band and thanked them for doing the show. And when she got to Felder, she said, thank you for doing the show. And he responded, you're welcome. And then as she started to turn to walk away, he said, I guess. Now, he says it wasn't meant to be very insulting, but Glenn Fry overheard him and was incredibly insulted and outraged that he would be even mildly disrespectful to two people that Henley and Fry held in high regard. So... During the concert that they would go out to play that night, and this is one of the best part of that Eagles documentary, is that there is audio recordings of Fry and Don Felder uh, insulting each other and threatening each other on stage. Now, I don't think the audience could hear it, but you can hear it if you watch the documentary. It's very interesting that tensions at this point were boiling over. So at the end of the show... Felder storms off stage, smashes his guitar, <clears throat> jumps in his limo, drives away. And they don't end up fighting. But it was the breaking point for Glenn Fry, And he didn't do any more shows with them. And I don't even think they were all in the same room again. Because as they were recording overdubs for their 1980 Eagles Live album, uh, Fry did not join them in the studio. He sent his recorded parts to them via the mail so that was it the band was over they were all fighting they all had issues with each other and after this explosive night at long beach in california the eagles would come to a close and remain effectively defunct for almost 15 years now joe walsh had a solo career before the eagles so he would be perfectly capable to returning to that solo career after the Eagles. And that's where we're going to pick up next time in part two. So that's going to wrap things up here today. Uh, the next episode is going to be Joe Walsh part two. And that's going to cover the years 1981 up until current day, 2020. We're going to look at his the solo success he had in the early 80s, sort of the sad commercial decline of the late 80s and early 90s, the return to the Eagles, his struggles with addiction and sobriety, uh, and then up until what he's doing today. We have so much more stuff to cover, and I think it's going to be a lot of fun, so stay tuned for that part two episode. Otherwise, just some quick housekeeping here at the end. Um, the intro song for this show is I Can Play That Rock and Roll, by Joe Walsh, so very appropriate today. We're going to talk about that song more in depth next time. Uh, I'd like to say thank you to Michael DeBar from the Power Station. Uh, he recorded a cameo uh, for us, which I played at the start of the episode. I appreciate him doing that. It's a nice little shout out. And then I would implore all of you listening today to check us out on at Play That Podcast on Twitter. Uh, at Play That Rock and Roll on Facebook. You can find us if you just search Play That Podcast. 
uh, and Facebook search bar will come right up. And then if you search Play That Rock and Roll on YouTube, you'll either find our old channel, which will redirect you to our current channel, or you'll find, find our new channel, which is Play That Rock and Roll. Uh, I'd also like to give a shout out to my friends at the Not Politically Correct um, podcast. They had me on as a guest uh, a couple of weeks ago. We had a lot of fun talking about all kinds of stuff, uh, including what I do on this show. So uh, if you can find uh, that link. Hey, guys, thanks for having me on. It was a lot of fun. And then I would also like to beg all of you to please rate and review us on iTunes. It helps me quite a bit in these early episodes. So with that, thank you again for joining me. Thanks for listening. We're going to talk about some great classic rock Joe Walsh music next time. And beyond that, I have a lot of great stuff planned for us this year and for the years to come. So please follow us on social media. Post a comment. Tell me what you like. Tell me what you don't like. And uh, But most of all, thank you for tuning in. So with that, Joe, my man, play us out. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.